grateful to be here. Uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I do want to make something really, really clear about what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because if we sort of lose sight of what's happening in the Bible as a whole, we might look at the book and think that Solomon is sort of writing us like a self-help thing. Like if you can just, you know, push aside these desires and attach these, these, this way of living, then your life will be good and your life will be happy. Um, but that's not what he's doing, right? This is not a self-help book, but the entire Bible is pointing us to Jesus. And so when we read this stuff, we should read the book of Ecclesiastes and all of these things that Solomon is telling us and realize, like, I'm not really capable of doing this on my own, right? Um, but that it's Jesus who is, who is doing these things. He's the only one who can enable me to do them. And also, I want, to, I want to make it really clear that what we read in Ecclesiastes is not God saying, I wonder how I can make my creation have an easier life, have a happier life. Um, that's not what's happening either. God is simply telling us this is the way we live, and we do it and we believe it, not because our life will necessarily get easier or that we will be happier for it, but because it's true, because this is what God wants us to do. Now, don't mistake a lack of happiness necessarily for a lack of joy, right? We will find joy in the Lord in these things. But your life is not going to get easier if you do what Solomon is telling us to do, right, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so uh, I just want to be really clear that we, we believe it and we apply it because it's good and because it's true um, and that we are not able to kind of do this on our own. And so Solomon is going to hint at that a little bit in the book, um, but we're going to get to that here in a minute. So I got to tell you, I was tempted a little bit this week to, uh, to just stand up here and read somebody else's sermon um, because... <laughs> Well, A, there's some, there's some hard stuff going on here, but B, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this sermon and delivered it back like in, the, in 1940 or 41, and uh, it's probably one of the greatest sermons to ever be spoken on this topic. So he didn't necessarily even have Ecclesiastes 6 as his text, but he wrote this sermon and delivered it, and it's called The Weight of Glory. Um, in fact, an entire book has been written based off of this one like 30-minute sermon that he delivered years and years ago. Um, and I'm not going to stand up here and read it to you, but I do want to actually read kind of a lengthy section to you. So it's a couple of minutes long, um, and so I'm going to read it slow, not because I think you're dumb, but because it's really hard to, like, gather and just, I mean, the guy is brilliant. And if you hear C.S. Lewis and you're thinking, well, isn't that the Narnia guy, like the guy who wrote those kids' books? Yeah, that's him, but he did a lot more than that, right? He wrote more than just a couple of kids' books with talking animals and fantastical worlds, right? But he... He's probably one of the deepest thinkers and most philosophical men of the last hundred years, without question. And so he, he is hard to grasp. Like every sentence, you kind of have to hear it and digest it a little bit. And so um, I'm going to read it slower than I would normally read things just because there's so much good stuff in here. Um, so this is from The Weight of Glory. It's just a little, like a couple of paragraphs. Um, I would encourage you, too, if, uh, if you... If, if New Year's resolution, if that's your thing, if you want to do that, um, set aside whatever you're reading right now, if you're reading anything, and go and find something from Lewis that you've never read and read it. It will, like, change your life. If you've never read this sermon, it's only 10 pages long, go find it. It's online. Um, read it in its entirety. It's just, it's fantastic. So here's just a little bit of it. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. 
I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent. We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret that we cannot hide and that we cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is the desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedience was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all of that is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to not be itse- would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was a longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if we are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into idols and break the hearts of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune that we have not heard. News from a country that we have never yet visited. Do you think that I am trying to weave a spell? Well, perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us our entire lives. Our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. And yet it is a remarkable thing that such philosophies of progress and tolerance themselves bear reluctant witness to the truth that our real longing is elsewhere. They want to convince you that earth is your home by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven and thus trying to destroy your instinct of being exiled on earth. They tell you that this transformation into heaven is still a good ways off in the future, thus giving credence to the knowledge that the fatherland has not yet here and now. Finally, lest your longing for the trans-temporal should awake and spoil the whole affair, they use any rhetoric that comes to hand to keep out of your mind the recollection that even if all the happiness that they promised to you could come to man on earth, yet still each generation would lose it by death including the last generation of all, and the whole story would be nothing, not even a story, forever and ever. It encompasses 
what we've been talking about, right? The world is lying to us, trying to tell us over and over and over again that this world offers us something that can fulfill us when it can't. So as good as C.S. Lewis's words are, the Bible is far better, right? So let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Let's look at these first six verses again together to start. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not yet seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All right, so these, um, we'll, we'll start with this. So this begs a question, right? Why in the world would God give blessings to people, but then not give them the ability to enjoy it. After reading this, this is the first question. And really, that question sort of paired with this question is Solomon accusing God of doing something evil by doing this to people. It is an interesting thing to do. And I think the first thing to notice is, A, that God is at the center of everything. Right? God is giving the blessing, and he's also giving us the ability to enjoy the blessing. It's not that he gives it to us and says, now good luck trying to find a way to make this, to, to, to bring joy in your life from this thing that I've given you. He gives us a blessing and gives us the ability to enjoy it. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, God didn't give me the things that I have. I earned those things, right? I, I worked hard and I did all of this stuff. Like, who gave you the ability to work hard? Who gave you that intelligence to start your own business and to run it and to do well with it, Right? I talk about Daniel a lot because it's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. You remember what God does to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel? He takes his mind from him. And Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years, wanders around like an animal eating grass. You think your intelligence is somehow you're doing, it's not. Right? God can even take that from you. And so everything you have, whether you realize it or not, is a gift from God, right? He has given you either the strength to work or just maybe he's handed you things that you didn't work for. But whatever, however it is you acquired the things that you have today, God is the one who gave it to you in one way or another. But you also have to be given the gift of enjoyment. He has to give you the ability to be able to enjoy these things. And here's, to me, this is something that is maybe not necessarily new, but something that I don't consider or that I don't think about all the time. Because when we get something and we don't enjoy it, what do we usually say, oh, I'm the problem? Not usually, right? We don't like to sort of turn, turn the, the, the guilt onto ourselves and say, I'm the one, I'm the cause of this problem. We say, oh, I just got a 20% raise and now I'm not happy with it. It's probably just because I needed a 50% raise and not 20. 
right? It just wasn't quite enough, and that's the reason that I'm not happy with what I have. Or I've been given a nicer car or a bigger house or all of these things, and God has blessed me with these things, and I'm not finding enjoyment with them because they weren't quite big enough or they weren't quite enough of an improvement. And we don't ever look at ourselves and say, what is wrong with me that I'm not able to enjoy the gifts that God has given to me? We think the check wasn't big enough, and that's why I'm not happy. And the reality is that we may not have the capacity to enjoy them, and the answer is not more stuff, but God, give me the capacity. This is clearly a gift from God, and so we go to him and ask, Lord, help me to be content with what I have where I am. And so it brings us back to the question, why, doesn't God just, why isn't that a package deal? Why isn't God just automatically giving us contentment when he gives us a blessing? What, what's going on here? And it made me think of like my own kids. Like I go to Walmart, we're walking through the place. And those people are geniuses, right? They put toys everywhere. You're like buying eggs and here's some toys that your kids are going to ask you for, right? It's just everywhere. There's toys everywhere. And so when the kids go, like, oh, I want this. And, you know, they'll, I mean, they'll make the most ridiculous statements. This is the only thing I've ever wanted. If you'll give me this toy, I'll never ask for anything ever again. And when I say, that's not, it's not going to make you happy. That's not the only thing you'll ever want. My son doesn't be like, oh, of course, Father, you are older and you have the wisdom and I was being foolish and so I, t- I changed my mind. I believe you. No, they just argue, right? No, but Dad, seriously, this is the thing. I've been wanting one of these and, and my cousin has one and we played with it or my friend has one and we play with it and it was the most fun I've ever had and if you would just buy me this one thing, I will be happy forever. Sometimes the answer is to buy that toy and let them see that they will not be happy forever, right? Sometimes telling your children the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God is not quite enough, right? You have to let them experience the thing for themselves and realize you go and check in with them, right? A week later, a month later with that toy that was going to make them happy forever. Half the time, my kids don't even know where it is, right? And so this is the lesson. Look, son, do you recognize, do you remember what you said to me when we were at the store? This is going to be the thing that makes you happy forever. Here we are, 10 days later, and you're not playing with it. You don't even know where it is. Let this be a lesson to you that nothing in this world can satisfy. Like, sometimes that's what we need. And God is our Father who is perfect. He knows this. And He gives us stuff, and He won't let us enjoy it for the the purpose of us to, to see it and realize that didn't make me happy. I thought it would. It doesn't. And we see the wisdom through experience. So this leads us then to another question. What should we do? How do we move forward? Because there are two very different roads that have been taken by humankind based off of this wisdom, right? Nothing in this world is going to satisfy you. And how many cults exist throughout human history who have said, okay, fine, then we just won't have anything. I'm going to go off and live in the desert by myself. I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to live on bread and water and one set of clothes. And that's, if this isn't going to make me happy, then I will just go the exact opposite. And I'm going to go down this road of asceticism, right? And I'm going to go down this road of, like, I am going to strangle my will and I'm going to bring it under control to the point where I won't even desire anything. Do you understand 
That's what like Buddhists do when they meditate, right? They meditate, and the purpose of meditation is to, when a desire comes up in their mind, they say, I don't want it anymore. Desire brings about suffering, and so any desire that they have, they just, boom, get out of here. Get out, and to the point where nirvana is the idea that you have absolutely no desires. That is anti-biblical. Right? God did not create us to live on this world to have no desires. And not only that, he created us with desire for the idea that we would be able to fulfill them in an appropriate way. Right? There's the right and wrong to fulfill any of our desires, but God created us with desires so that we would be able to fulfill them. That we would be able to give glory to God when we do fulfill them. This idea of training your will, of bringing it under your control, like it, it just doesn't work. There was a documentary, like a mini-series that came on, I think over the summer, and I just like, I love historical documentaries. I just like, I, I don't hardly read fiction anymore or watch TV shows that are not like based on real things. I don't know, I just, the phase that I'm in in my life, I just, I love watching it. So anytime one of those things comes on, it's like, man, I just it, 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 take it in as quickly as I can. I, you know. And so there was this one that was, I don't remember which, which of the channels it was on, but it was called Under the Banner of Heaven. And it was about this sort of sect of the Mormon church who was like really extreme. And so I watched the show and then I went and read the book that it was based off of. And as I was reading the book, the author, he's interviewing a guy who, who used to be a part of this really extreme you know, break off from the Mormon church. And they like, I mean, nothing, like no technology, no nothing. Like they lived basically like what we would understand as a modern day monk. They're just living on the basics of life. And he said, he, so this guy he's interviewing, he wasn't a member of that church anymore. And he was asking him, what, what are some of the things that would happen? And he very jokingly, I mean, but in all seriousness, but very laughing when he said, he said, you know, one, one of the things that used to happen is that the pastor would stand up in front of the church and he would, he would um, rail against the evils of TV and like watching, watching movies and all this stuff. And you would find that the next day, about 200 yards outside of our camp would be a pile of TVs that were buried. Because the people weren't actually doing it, right? They're living in this community with the idea that we're going to break our will and we're going to bring it under our control and live in perfect obedience to God. And it never ever happens removing desire from your life is not the thing that is going to fix you understanding the desire and and fulfilling it correctly this is what the bible teaches us this is what god wants us to do and so when we we read about all of these different people and all of these different religions who have said well this is how we're going to beat it They're wrong because not only do they not do it, but it doesn't work. Even if they could do it, even if a Buddhist could completely remove all desire from their life, right? There's this old, old story within the Buddhist religion is that there's a guy and he's reached nirvana. He's just sitting there and someone says, comes up to him and says, this is your son. And he says, is that so? And so he takes the son in, and he, ra- he raises this kid, and then um, years go by, and the person comes back and says, actually, that wasn't your son, that was my son, I just couldn't take care of him, and now I want to take him back, so I'm taking him. And the same guy says, is that so? This is his entire life. He doesn't care about anything. Right? He doesn't care that somebody dropped his kid off, he doesn't care when the kid is taken away. Like, is that the life you're after? 
Is that the life that you want to lead with absolutely no desire? That's not what the Bible is teaching us. But many people have read this book, this chapter even, and said, well, this, is, this must be the answer. I'm just going to remove it all from my life. You guys ready? More C.S. Lewis. This one's from Mere Christianity. Have you ever read Mere Christianity? Read it. It's amazing. This is what he says. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. Men feel a sexual desire. Well, there is such thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire with no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, then I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must, keep, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get it snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main objective of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. You see, God gave us desires. And the ones that we, that hole, you know, you probably heard that your entire life, right? There's a God-sized hole in you and nothing is going to fill it but God. That's what he's talking about, right? There is a desire on this earth that we have that nothing fulfills and that nothing can fill except for God himself. He has given us desires that we can fulfill. And once again, right, the limits are correct. We don't desire food so that we can become a glutton. We don't desire things so that we can take in an excess. But in the proper context, all of our desires can be rightly or wrongly expressed. I think this is one of the main points of the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole. That God is trying to tell us, look, enjoy food and drink and your family and being together. But any of those things, if any of those things ever become your God, they are, it's, it's improper. You are, you are fulfilling that desire in a wrong way. So asceticism is not the way, right? But fulfilling our desires under God's law and under his control and under his guidance is the way that we move forward. Now we see some very disturbing language if you will right it brings up images of things this this comparison with the man who dies on his own and then the stillborn child you can probably see why we didn't do this last week right on christmas morning like this is this is not maybe the happiest language that we see in our bible but it's really important for us to understand what solomon is trying to say this comparison is real and i would say that if I had read this a year ago and tried to consider it, it wouldn't really have hit me the way it hits me now. Because for the last year, I've been a chaplain in the hospital. And in the last year, I have been present at both of these things. At one in the morning, I was called in for a woman who had a miscarriage. And it was the most gut-wrenching experience of my life to see this poor child who was, didn't have the chance of living its life. But at the same time, that hospital room was filled with family 
who were there surrounding and loving this child who they never even really met. But there's tears flowing from 10, 15 people, right, who are there who are so grieved by the fact that this life has been lost. I've also been with people in multiple occasions who have died and there's nobody there. Not only is their family not present, but when we try and call their family to inform them of what's going on, they don't even want to talk to us. I'm not going to claim him. I don't want to be a part of that man's life anymore. And I don't know, right? I don't know all the situations, but I'm just saying the sadness that I have felt in that room with that man dying, like that is far worse than the death of a stillborn child who has family. At least there are people around who, are loved, who loved and cared for that baby for the very short amount of time that it was on earth, right? Solomon knows what he's talking about, right? There is a greater sadness in a person who by his standard, right, he, the way he describes him is that he has, at least by the standard of this society, has all the money in the world, has 100 children, and has lived for 2,000 years. When you think about Old Testament, right, what, is, what are the things that they want? Right? Long life, lots of kids, lots of possessions, like that's sort of the blessing that God gives. I mean, it, so those things are not bad. These are, these are the things that God, when he says, I'm going to bless you, those are usually the things that he says that's going to happen. You're going to live a long life, you're going to have a lot of kids, and you're going to have great possessions. These are all gifts from the Lord. And Solomon says, it would be better for the man who has all of that, who doesn't know how to enjoy them, who doesn't know how to appreciate them, be better for him to be stillborn to never experience life at all this is how serious this matter is it's not just like ah oh, well you know maybe i'll try to be a little more grateful for the things that i have maybe i'll try to stop putting so much hope in there like i can just wean this off a little bit right like so if all of my hope is in my job i'll just slowly sort of back off of that and eventually i'll be able to find my hope in the lord and not in my job or not in my this or that or whatever like, how much more severe language does god need to use to wake us up to see what this is horrific if we are looking at the pleasures and the, and the gifts from God and we are saying those are the thing that give me fulfillment and those are the thing that give me life, God is saying that it would be better that you had never lived. I don't know how much more extreme he can be. What more does he need to say for us to wake up to this truth? Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have? Uh, sorry. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he poses these two things. So Solomon is a very philosophical guy, right? So he kind of gives us these images and these things. And if we don't take at least a minute to sort of think about them and try and figure them out, um, sometimes we can just blow right past them and they don't always make a whole lot of sense. He asks this question, what, does, what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? And then he says, none. And we say, Wait a minute, didn't you write the book of Proverbs? Like over and over and over again you tell us to seek wisdom, right, to seek knowledge. You can't even get through the first stanza of chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote to us without reading. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, right? 
The fool despises knowledge and understanding. So what is he trying to tell us? He's not trying to tell us, it doesn't matter. Don't seek wisdom. Just be dumb. It's fine. It doesn't matter. You can just do whatever you want. Just live in your ignorance and, and, and find bliss in that. That would be a huge contradiction of many other things that he wrote and many other things that a lot of the other authors of the Bible wrote. What he is saying is that wisdom is only good if it's not the thing that is fulfilling you. How many people do you know who want to get smarter just so that they can feel smarter than everybody else? Right? We've all been there. I'm sure we've all been there ourselves, right? I'm reading this book so that my cousin, when I see him next month, I can really lambast all his dumb beliefs that he has, right? I'm going to read this thing and I'm going to outsmart this guy or this guy or whatever. And we're doing it so that we can feel smarter And ultimately, it's feeding this ego, right? So that we can feel superior. If that's why you seek wisdom, you're no better than the fool. That's what he's telling us, right? If that's your reason for finding wisdom, just stop. Don't even, just burn all your books. It's fine. There's no no benefit for you to continue to read and learn if that's why you're trying to do it. But if you're trying to do it in the way that he described in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, if you are trying to gain wisdom so that you can learn to fear and revere the Lord more, so that you can follow him better, so that you can be more of a servant of Jesus, then absolutely you should read every book you can get your hand on. So what advantage does the wise man have? Well, he knows more about God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and deeper wisdom means a deeper faith. And ultimately, your deeper faith will allow you to lead someone else into deeper faith, right? That's what discipleship is all about. You can't lead somebody down a path that you've never walked yourself. And so if you are hoping to find a young man or a young woman in this church whom you can disciple, if you're not reading your Bible and you're not gaining wisdom for the Lord's sake, What do you have to offer? What do you have in way of teaching them? And so we don't just do it then so that we have a better relationship with the Lord, but that we can then lead other people in a deeper and stronger relationship in the Lord. He also says to us, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering appetite. Takes a minute to sort of figure that one out, right? What Better is is the thing that you can see right in front of you than the thing that you are longing for. So God is telling us, be content with what you have. Better is the thing, what, what, I, always, I always get it backwards. Better is what one, hand, one bird in the hand than two in the bush, right? The thing that you have is better than the thing that you think might be over here that you don't already have possession of. That's what Solomon is telling us. Be content with what you have right in front of you before you let your appetite go and want to gather more and more and more things. And here's the thing. When you're content with what you have, the Lord will bless you and he will give you more. And you'll be content with that too. And you'll be wanting to give that away and be generous with that. And then you'll be, and he'll give you more and you'll be content with that. Because the gifts and the blessings of God are not to try and feed that appetite that will never be quenched by the things on this earth. But it's for those who are content, for those who already know, I am happy with what I have. God, if you want to give me more, great, I'll take it. But I am so content with where I am. I'm not asking you for more. Those are usually the people that God gives more things to, right? You can be generous with those things and continue 
to give. And the last thing here is these last few verses. It says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And, uh, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? I've been up here a while, and I've been talking, right? If you, if you sort of drifted off, come back to me, right? This is like the crux of the issue. This is the most important thing in chapter 6. This question, I wish Solomon had answered it, right? He answers it later. We're not going to leave it unanswered. For who knows what is good for man? Do you? Do you know what's good for yourself? How often do you do the thing that you think is good for yourself, and it sort of blows up in your face? Now, I'm not talking about you submitting yourself to the Bible and saying, well, the Bible says this is good, and so I'm going to agree that this is good. But just in your own instinct, when you go forward with something that you think is good, how often does that work out well for you? Zero percent. That's my record, right? I'm batting a zero percent here. It didn't work for Adam. He thought he knew what was best for him, and he sins and brings destruction and sin and death into the entire world. We don't know. That's why when I stand up here with my Bible open, I will never tell you what I think is good for you. My goal and my desire is to read God's word and tell you what God says is good for you. Because I don't, my opinion is worthless. You don't need it, right? It's no good. I'm not going to tell you what I think is good, but what God says is good. And I know it's not possible to like boil this whole thing down into like a quick little one word answer or something. Um, but if you've ever like sort of, I don't know, we Baptists, for whatever reason, we don't like the catechisms, right? Sounds Catholic-y or something. I don't know, whatever. But like the, ca- I mean, the catechisms are, I mean, this good, right? And if you've ever looked at them, what's the first one? What is the chief end of man? If we answered that question for ourselves, it would be very different, Right? To enjoy myself, to glorify, glorify myself forever. That is, not what, that is not what is actually good for us, right? What is the real answer? What is the chief end of man to enjoy God and to glorify him forever? That's what we're meant to do. That is what God has commanded us to do. We wouldn't have sought that road on our own. We don't know what is good for us, but God does. And that's why he revealed his word to us, so that we can know what is good for us. Solomon asks us this question, and he doesn't give an answer yet. But the answer is that we glorify God forever. And the problem with that is that if we are living in sin, and if we are not trusting in Jesus for our salvation and for our forgiveness, if that is not where our faith is, we cannot glorify God. Nothing we do can please him. We are separated from him in our sin. We are dead to him. That's how the Bible describes it. Our spirit is dead. You could cure cancer, end war, war, and end world hunger. And that is still sinful if you are not glorifying God in those activities. Right? You can do the greatest humanitarian thing in the world. 
But if you are separated from God from your sin, that is not glorifying to him. You see, Ecclesiastes is not pointing you to try harder. It's not giving you three things that you can do in order to live a happy life. I'll give you my last Lewis quote for the morning. He was asked, what is... Um, he was, I think, he was somewhere, uh, Oxford or somewhere over, you know, over in England, and he was asked, what, based off of your understanding, what is the, what is the way to live a happy, uh, the happiest life that you can? And his first words were, not Christianity. He said, every, by, by everything that I can tell, self-worship and only caring about yourself, as far as the world standard of happiness, like that is what I have seen. He's like, I don't believe in Christianity because it makes me happy or it makes my life easier. I believe it because, it's, because it is true. Because it's good. Because this is what God has commanded us to do. Ecclesiastes is not trying to lay out a plan for you to make your life easier and happier. Right? He is trying to tell you what God has commanded us to do. How God has commanded us to live. It would be far easier to just keep chasing the things that everyone around us is chasing. Right? I'm chasing this promotion. I'm chasing this newer house or this bigger house or whatever. I'm chasing all the things that all of my friends and neighbors are chasing. And and I fit right in and everything is easier and better. It seems that way. Ecclesiastes is not saying your life is going to get easier. But your life will be more in line with what God has commanded us to do. To live this simpler life. To find joy in your toil. To find joy in the things that you eat and drink. And to find joy in your family. Our natural inclination is to say, that's not enough. I want to find more. There's got to be something else out there that will bring me more joy than I can get through these very simple commands. The message of Ecclesiastes is this is God's command for us. Your desire to seek more than that is your own vanity, is your own ego, is something is going on that is out of tune with what God has commanded us to do. So I ask you again, do you know what is good for you? The Christian, we look to the Bible, but if you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I don't have that. I don't have faith in God. I'm not following Jesus. I've been trying to find what is good for me my entire life and I've never been able to find it. The message for you this morning is that Christ is what is good for you. He is the one who brings fulfillment. He is the one who brings salvation and forgiveness when nothing else can. He is the son of God. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and was the sacrifice for your sin that you could never be, that no animal could ever be, right? Nothing in this world can satisfy the wrath of God towards your sin other than Jesus Christ. You want to know what is good for you. That's what the Bible says is good for you. And every Christian in here who has experienced that firsthand We'll say amen to that, right? Amen. That is what is good for me. I would have never sought it out on my own. I would have never found it on my own. But God gave it to me, and I see it clearly. That the thing that is good for me is the thing that God has given to me. So I ask you, are you going to continue to try and just reach around in the dark, looking for joy, looking for happiness, and never find it? Or are you going to turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and repent because he is there. He loves you. He wants, to, he wants to give you that forgiveness if only you will repent of your sin. He'll fill that void 
right? And this is true for us as Christians or non. It, because as Christians, we sort of get confused, right? And we sort of start to look at the way the world is doing things. And we do sort of what Lewis said in that very opening quote, right? That we're seeking our fulfillment on earth and we're, we're seeking to make heaven on earth. And that doesn't exist. That's a, a nice statement, but it's not a truism, right? That's not something that we will ever make happen. God is going to make it happen one day, right? If you ever get depressed, if you start reading, and you're like, man, this is just weighing me down too much. Go and read Revelation 20 and 21 and the new heaven and the new earth and God descends, right? And there is no more need for a son. And there's, we are with God in perfection. It's going to happen. Heaven is going to come to earth when God says that it's going to happen. You're not going to make it happen. I'm not going to make it happen, right? Stopping global warming or just any number of things, that's not going to make it happen. We're not going to fix earth through humanitarian effort. It just will never happen. You will never find your joy in that, but you will find it in Jesus. And so my question to you once again is, are you going to turn to Christ or are you going to keep trying to find what's good for you under your own steam? I'm sorry to say, but that's a failure. It's never going to work. So I invite you, come to Jesus this morning. He will embrace you. He will love you. He will forgive you. It starts with forgiveness and it ends with a life full of joy. It's it's harder. Your life is not going to get easier when you accept Jesus. It will get harder. It will get a little bit more complicated trying to figure out, like, I've got to follow now what God is calling me to do and not just whatever I want to do all the time. Right? I'm not, I don't want to sugarcoat something and say all of your problems will be fixed. Things will get harder for you if you come to Jesus. But Jesus is what is good and Jesus is what is true. And that's what we should be grabbing onto no matter what. No matter what it costs us, we follow Christ. So it starts with being forgive, forgiven and it ends with a life full of joy that can't be found anywhere else. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are so grateful that you would reach down into this world, that you would inspire men to write this book that we have in front of us that we know it is words directly from you Lord, we are just too dumb to figure out this world and our life and the things around us we can't figure it out on our own we can't find happiness on our own and we can't find meaning and fulfillment by ourselves but you have made a way for us to find all of those things in christ and we are so grateful for that We love you. We thank you for this book that you have given to us that at face value seems a little bit depressing and a little bit horrorsome. And Lord, we, we read these things and we just think, Lord, what are, you, what are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to do? We thank you that you have illuminated your scripture to us that we can see that there is a life far better than the American dream and far better than the, the, the life that everyone around us seems to be trying to live and seems to be trying to get us to live. A life of simplicity, of seeking after you in all that we do, of being generous and content with what we have and not always trying to find the bigger, better, nicer thing. But Lord, that we are grateful for the gifts that you have already given to us. And of those gifts, the greatest is Jesus. And we are so thankful that he would come and be the sacrifice and be forgiveness for us. 
It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.